it's amazing that uh, some of these networks are actually running up against the limitations of IPv4, running yeah. out of uh, network addresses. Correct. And systems that support IPv6 uh, you know, are able to overcome that, but not all systems support IPv6 yet. That's right. Hey guys, welcome to VS Energy's BMS podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Mark Sankey and Rich Fish. In today's podcast, we will be discussing IT challenges with large-scale integration. Now, I think a good starting point for this podcast is just to outline a few maybe general or specific IT challenges that we'll be discussing. And I have a small list here, and I'll let you guys add to it once I go through it. I think Physical network size can be quite an IT challenge for large-scale integrations. Obviously, network security, and we've talked a bit about this in some previous episodes. Also, network management. Again, we've discussed this in previous episodes, but you need to properly manage your BMS network or your, your facility network to ensure it's safe and secure. And then another one that I thought was bandwidth. So again, your your network has to have enough bandwidth to operate properly. And maybe we can talk about, obviously the BMS network probably doesn't require too much bandwidth, but if there's other networks and this is a VLAN or something, it could probably bog down your network. Do you guys have anything else you want to add to that kind of list? I think that gives us a good number of topics to discuss, Clayton. Mark? I agree. Perfect. So maybe we'll start with then, I guess it'd be in the security realm, right? The importance of automated and managed updates to system software. So that'd be Windows and the application software BMS. And I know we've seen this firsthand on a handful of projects where updates can cause issues. And obviously you need them, but you need them at the right time. So I don't know if Mark or Rich, you guys want to dive into that? I'd like to just comment on this and walk it back just a little bit in terms of the inception of integration projects and things like that. Many times we get involved in projects where the mission objective is to move a a client away from a proprietary network, either because they're not, most, most commonly because they're not satisfied with the performance of the system the performance of the vendor, either due to actual performance or cost issues. So oftentimes we find that the legacy system, the systems system or systems that are already installed have not been updated for sometimes many years. That in and of itself leads to issues on the integration side because we have systems which sometimes are no longer even supported by the manufacturer. And if they are supported, they haven't been updated in two, three, five years in terms of software security and um, operating system and application software. So to set the stage for automated and managed updates, once there is a system integration or during the planning of a system integration project, it is imperative that updates be planned for, be managed, and especially not deferred, not deferred for months, years, and eventually forgotten because the system, the the network is just like any other automated network. It requires 
security updates. It requires operating system and application software updates. Why, why would um, updates often be deferred? I know you made that kind of a critical point. Why would people just not update their system? Typically because of cost issues. So a proprietary system manufacturer, the, the perception is, well, this is excessive cost and or they may just not be aware. You know, when, when you get to the point where it's been communicated to the legacy BMS vendor, BMS contractor, that we're no longer satisfied with either service performance or costs. Both parties tend to turn their backs on each other and there's no longer an automated system to inform the the customer that updates are required and it just doesn't happen. Then you get into the situation where updates to the operating system can technically break the application software, the BMS software, because they're not supported by newer versions. Working with a client right now that has multiple sites and multiple different BMS vendors and inventorying their software versions, not only the uh, application software version, but the operating system version and several sites in this network of uh, buildings are still running Windows XP Pro 2002 operating system solely because the BMS application software can't run on anything higher than that. And obviously, we all know XP hasn't been supported for uh, probably more than 10 years. You get into those situations where if there were for instance, uh, you know, an IT department would come in and update that operating system. It would completely break the application software and require the owner to invest in an upgrade, which oftentimes can be expensive, as you said, Mark, and particularly if the uh, BMS vendor and the owner no longer have a good relationship and there's a requirement to upgrade the software just to keep the system operating, that's a uh, a situation for lack of a better term raping and pillaging yeah that's a stick up would it make a difference though if say my bms network was its own local lan never saw the internet and just needed to do what it needed to do like why why necessarily would i have to update it if it if it works when it started and it's never going to see the i don't know the light of day if you want to call it that you know being the internet can I just leave it? Well, that's all well and good when you have a single vendor. But when you start an integration project, by definition, we're marrying multiple systems by different manufacturers or sometimes by the same manufacturer, but vastly different generations and operating characteristics. Then it is required that you do security updates. And now with I would say almost every system having a web facing portal without going through operating system updates, the security risks are extremely high. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And that's true. We're, we're, we're focusing on it as a IT challenge with large scale integration. So we're assuming that this is a 
more of a complicated system. There's a lot, a lot of moving parts and a lot of different functionalities of the system rather than just your standalone BMS system. It even goes to, even if you have a single vendor for the BMS, but you're connected to other backnet devices, for instance, chillers, boilers, drives, and you don't perform those updates and the connections, network connections to those systems aren't updated at the same time or potentially not updated at the same time. You go back to what Rich said, all of a sudden there's a broken connection. Do you guys, do you recommend then you do scheduled updates or somebody, an IT team, an individual does those updates when they are there watching it to ensure everything's working properly? You definitely need to manage updates. Leaving Windows automatic updates or whatever operating system automatic updates turned on is a recipe for eventual disaster. It needs to be managed either by the IT staff or if the uh, the building has some kind of service agreement with their building automation system vendor, you know, managed as part of the uh, the PMs or you know a uh, a software maintenance agreement. So, just to take this one step further, we we are of the opinion, VS Energy is of the opinion that you never get a better price on anything that you buy than on bid day or on the date of response to an RFP. Right. So it is incumbent on the specification or procurement document author to include the requirement over a period of defined time frame that operating system and application software updates be included for X amount of years or the service agreement is escalated at some index like the CPI over X years to forestall the potentiality of extreme escalation once that service provider is on site. And it's not a hard thing to do to build that into a procurement document. It just takes foresight, effort, understanding that those updates are required. And far too many times we've gone onto, onto large sites with very large networks that haven't been updated for five, six, seven, ten years. And it's very difficult, even though you might hear these vendors are awful, these folks, but and they haven't performed, et cetera. But when you see a system that hasn't been upgraded for seven, eight, nine, ten years, it's very hard to specifically put all of the all of the responsibility in the basket of the provider because you can't go that long without updating. How often does your laptop or your PC say updates are required to install? And we're looking at far more complicated and far more risk on networks of that side size than you are on your personal or work computers. Yeah, when we're helping consulting engineers craft specifications for uh, BMS systems, you know, smart building technologies, we're putting in language to require those kind of software maintenance agreements be part of the bid, as you say, 
for a minimum of three years, but as much as five years. And, and that makes perfect sense, Rich, because it, if you, it, it goes back to, even though the, we're talking about open systems and we're talking about non-proprietary, there still needs to be someone responsible in owning the security of the network, the updates of the network. And most often there's not an in-house entity that can take care of that, that it may show up, but it would be an afterthought, not a primary responsibility. And it's best that it's best served to be managed by the vendors who are responsible to keep the system up and running. So that kind of leads me, I guess, to the question I want want to ask is I'm envisioning, and obviously it can probably vary quite drastically, but you know, a large facility with a complicated IT integration, there is a building wide, maybe it's fiber, maybe it's copper, but a building wide network, right? And in this network, you're going to, you're going to have different, if you want to call them sub networks, but you're going to have maybe a, you know, a BM, your BMS network and then any other networks that are integrating to that. So like, are we saying the BMS provider obviously is responsible for updating their equipment, their hardware, but the rest of that network, you know, switches, I don't know, your security appliances, all that stuff that may not be managed by the BMS provider solely. That's, I don't know, it just seems like there's a lot of moving parts. There can be a lot of moving parts in these in these large-scale networks. And where that responsibility lies on, I, I'm assuming just has to be stated clear and obvious that you know you are the you are responsible for updating this portion of the network and you are responsible for updating this portion of the network to make sure it all jives. The systems integrator, whether it happens to be the BMS contractor or a third-party systems integrator would normally have that responsibility coupled with the owner's IT staff if they exist. Right, right. That's a big if too on what their capabilities are, I suppose. So that makes sense. Okay, that helps clarify it for me and hopefully the listeners if they if there was any confusion on that. But perfect. So then moving forward from updates, we, we can all agree that obviously you need to manage and maintain the system with up with your updates properly to ensure everything is working correctly. What about backing up the system? How often does that happen? It really should happen pretty much automatically based on the setup of the server, whether it be a cloud-based server or a physical piece of hardware that's located on the site. Backups should be set up to do automatically based on some time frame. Most of the time it, it's done probably at a minimum of once a week. I would recommend typically doing it once a day so that any trend data and information that you're collecting isn't uh, you, worst case scenario, you, you lose a day's worth of trend data instead of weeks or months. I think that's important, Rich, because so often it's it just plain overlooked and go back five, seven, 10 years. I mean, we used to specify in-house backup with redundant RAID drives and those kinds of things. But now with the cloud, you basically get very, very, very cost-effective storage and doing it in an automated method to the cloud on a 
frequency basis on a, on a frequent basis like daily makes perfect sense unless there's you know a military installation for instance really doesn't want any data traveling outside their network and there's still absolutely cases where internal backup needs to be maintained but by and large unless it's an extraordinarily high security facility cloud backup is cheap easy and reliable agreed yeah, you, you stole what I was going to bring up, actually. So you answered the question before I even asked it regarding cloud right. backup. No, that's perfect. And these these two points that we're discussing really, to me, bundle as part of uh, network security, right? What Are there any other large aspects to the network security aside from you know managing your updates, backing up your system? What else can you do to kind of ensure your network is safe and secure? Uh, there are a, a lot of other... Uh aspects of network security that come into play from the standpoint of, you know, protecting the network, particularly when you have a web-facing interface to it, protecting the network from intrusion, hackers, you know, uh, denial of service attacks, even utilizing, if it's connected to an enterprise system, people hacking in through a BMS to attack other systems, like what happened with target some years ago where their point of sale system was attacked through the BMS. And I can't remember, it was over a hundred million people's credit card numbers and stuff were exposed. So there are a lot of other security aspects that are important when building a large integrate, large scale integrated network like that, where you're connected to other systems that may be vulnerable should someone find a way to, you know, gain access through the BMS. So knowing every, you know, identifying every device that's on the network, making sure those devices are secure, obviously VLANs and things like that, that firewalls that can be used to help, you know, prevent those kind of things. All of that needs to be taken into account. Yeah. So that brings up really my next point then is should these systems be on their own separate networks. And that to me is, you know, its own pair of fibers or is it, you know, it's going to change depending on the situation, but is a VLAN or a, just a standard individual LAN preferred for this stuff? When you go to a, you know, a dedicated BMS LAN that's not connected to anything else, you kind of you handcuff yourself a little bit from the standpoint of user access Anybody that you would want to have access to the system would have to be on that LAN or have, you know, some means of getting to that LAN where the benefit of being on an enterprise-wide LAN is that any computer uh, with a browser and the proper credentials can access information. Going these days beyond the, you know, the typical operator use of a BMS system when we're talking about these integrated systems where we may have dashboards, we may have data analytics that are used by non-operators, those connections need to be available. So you, you can handcuff yourself a little bit by going to a dedicated network. A VLAN might be a, a better application in that in that you know particular aspect where you can separate it while on the same hardware and give that uh, the the people that you expect to use it, the credentials and set up on their PCs, laptops, you know, however they're accessing the network. 
I would agree with Rich. And it, it, VLAN has been, from our perspective, shown to be very effective. There are many ways to authenticate at a VLAN IP address, username, password, all those things. Three by three authentication on a on a VLAN has been very secure, while at the same time allowing multiple users at multiple locations on the common enterprise network may access the BMS using their desktop equipment. So it, it comes down to though when the network is modified when it's new users are added, all those things that needs to be coordinated with site IT and the enterprise LAN and the VLAN manager, which would typically be the BMS or system integrator. Yeah, I would say utilizing VLANs definitely is going to require uh, an entity to really manage that whole network because there's there's a lot of moving parts with that, I would assume. That's correct. What about network speeds then? I know a lot of some a lot of switches. Probably the standard is you know they have the the would you call it the gigabit capability, but mm-hmm. what, like what's a that's probably that's not used much I assume because a lot of the other equipment can't transmit and receive at that rate. What's the standard? What's the requirement for this stuff? Well, the switches are basically gonna communicate with devices based on whatever the slowest speed right uh, yep. or the maximum speed of that device is mm-hmm. obviously when you're building a network for a large scale integration you want as much bandwidth as you can get particularly if you're doing big data analytics where you're going to be pulling a lot of information from various devices and running that in into the cloud for analytics or you know a piece of hardware that's doing analytics getting into some of the systems that we look at these days where there's, uh, particularly in healthcare, where there's contact tracing and asset management and stuff like that, you can end up with a lot of information moving around on that network. I'd like to see as a minimum, you know, 100 megabit per second and obviously utilizing the gigabit when possible just enhances that completely, you know, by a factor of 10. But uh, most devices I see nowadays um, support 100 megabits per second. Some of them now are going to the, to the gigabit in the BMS world. Not that much in the 10 megabits uh, anymore other than legacy stuff that's out there. Okay. And there is always advantage to having as much pipe as you can have. It's, I'm of the opinion that there's never too much. And, and the reality of it is there's uh, not that much more cost to install excess network capacity. Excess network capacity right now is cheap or during, at the time of installation is lower cost than coming back and rerunning network capacity in five years. We should all, we've all been around enough to know that sooner or later, every bit of network capacity that's installed will be used and will have to be replaced. We've seen, I know Rich has seen, and I've seen everything from twisted shielded pair as the primary network backbone to coaxial cable, 
and then finally up to Cat 5, Cat 6, and then fiber. So building in additional capacity in the network during construction, it only makes sense. It's one of those things that does not cost very much. And if you think you're putting in too much, double your capacity, and then you can worry about putting in too much. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with that. And maybe to take a step back then, we're talking about you know, adding network capacity, right? For for these large-scale integration projects, and maybe that's a, a new facility or an existing facility then, but for like for an existing facility, for instance, when we say, let, let's replace a legacy system and we want to integrate to whatever, you know, there's tons of different other networks and information that we talked about in other podcasts too that, you know, information we want to bring in if it's flight information or, you know, occupancy, anything. How often do you guys see the requirement to, you know, increase the network capacity or increase the network outreach, the physical network size, stuff like that? I mean, I imagine a lot of facilities have just what they need and they scab onto it as it grows, as opposed to putting in a giant central you know, network that reaches throughout an entire facility with dozens of different fibers, switches, and everything like that, right? Well, I have helped a couple of clients in, in recent times in large facilities actually build that type of higher-end network with a fiber backbone up and down through the building, higher-level switches, you know, racks with UPSs and the, all the things that you want for a fast, reliable, stable network. And then build on that, you know, out as you construct or, you know, attach systems, even in existing buildings. It's, like I said, what we talked about earlier, build for the worst case scenario that you think you're going to have and then double it and you will end up using it. That's very true. Clayton, if you think back to the, the, one of the recent projects that we did, the amount of cat five cable and it was bundles. I mean, bundles that would be two feet in diameter that was replaced and some of it was abandoned in place where it was not accessible. But when you think back to that and how much fiber we put in and what the cost of that was after we went through a bid process compared to, and, and look at the changes in functionality and reliability that were gained, that was probably one of the best investments that the airport could have made for both the project that we were involved in at the time and for the next at least 10 years with the amount of fiber that was put in and the number of dark fiber that was left in place that was all tested, identified, labeled, terminated. So there are plenty of connections available for both the operations team and the tenants and the airlines. That was a significant project and really changed the way that network hardware labeling management occurred completely documented and you look at how much of the existing network 
was ad hoc. Well, we'll pull a piece of cable from here to here, and that will get us to wherever we need to go. But it was never labeled. It was never identified. And as that network grew and grew and grew, it was dependent literally on the gray matter of a few people to be able to understand what was even there. And in the event, unfortunate event, somebody would get run over by a bus, uh, that would be a bad day. Now they have a clean network, completely documented, completely tested. And there's a lot of value in that. Oh, yeah, I agree completely. And, you know, valid points, obviously, just basing off of reliability. This is it, uh, That new network is extremely reliable, well-documented. There's a lot of redundancy in it, if you want to call it that, right? You're not just relying on this one piece of multi-mode fiber that goes from point A to point B that, you know, at any point throughout the facility gets nicked, touched, moved, it could just shut down a large piece of the network. So there's a lot to be said for, for putting in a, a nice quality IT network and building off of that for these large-scale integration projects, as opposed to scabbing on just as much as you need right now. Let's put in all of this we need. And, and that has the availability for multiple different LANs because there's a lot of dark fibers and the existing, the capacity of the switching and everything that was put in already. I mean, that could hold, I, I don't even know. I, uh, there's a lot of ports on those switches and a lot of speed available to do multiple VLANs off of just one you know, pair of fiber already going through there. And as Mark mentioned, it's uh, as the IT world has grown and smart building technologies have become the norm instead of the, uh, the uncommon, the cost of doing that has come down considerably. And it's very, very cost effective to do that, particularly as Mark mentioned earlier, when you're bidding a project and you include that in the bid process, constructing that network, you get it at a very, very reasonable cost that future proofs your building, you know, 20, 25 years. I think it's worth noting though, you know, doing this, you, there's a lot of time and effort spent in just the, the layout, you know, and the, the groundwork for the network before any systems are even part of it, probably identifying, you know, where do you want it to go? Where do you want your switches to be? How much fiber needs to be available here, there, and wherever? Because you could have a million fibers going, if they're going to the wrong place, it could be pretty useless. So that's where I think a lot of legwork is required is building these IT networks, if you want to call it that, properly and identifying where's available pathway is, where do I need to put in extra pathway if my pathway is already full if that's cable tray whatever conduit anything like that so and what kind of redundancy do you, yep. that you might want to build into it and what kind of uh, failure protection you know with the loop free technologies available today and you can build out networks particularly if you're using ethernet daisy chain that self heal you know basically allow you to build a uh, a complete loop and if something breaks in the network somewhere it self heals and that switch identifies a separate network where the break occurred so so listening to to you two guys I'm, I'm forced to editorialize here for a minute this is the responsibility of the designer specifier 
to have some not just familiarity but expertise in the design of networks it, uh, specifically with regard to the functionality required the excess capacity required the pathways the locations of racks etc and unfortunately in many cases it's it's the network installation and requirement is simply a couple of lines in the specification and say a sufficient network for the BMS shall be installed, period. Well, that doesn't cut it. There needs to be understanding of the points of connection, of the types of connection, of the amount of data throughput. They need to be able to analyze the, the amount of throughput, specify networks accordingly, and really be clear in terms of the means and methods of installation, how the fibers to be pulled, how the fibers to be terminated, the requirement for testing every segment, the submission of test results in, as part of the O&Ms. Th this is a, a challenge for many, many traditional A&E firms that may understand controls, but need to internalize the understanding and knowledge base required to specify networks. Yes, that's absolutely a, a really good point, Mark, because the people that are working on the specifying part of the BMS are typically mechanical engineers. They don't I, really have the expertise. You know, there's another division, you know, within a overall specification that covers communication networks that that expertise lives over there. And oftentimes, never the twain shall meet. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's incumbent really on these A&E firms to start to merge that both with not just their mechanical specification, but their electrical specification, the, the standard, you know, division 26 and division 23 need to merge with that technology part so that that expertise is brought into those disciplines. It's not happening right now. I can tell you that. <laughs> That's correct. Not often anyway. Yeah. Yeah, Rich, obviously there needs to be kind of a communication or if you want to call it that between the IT network management portion of this and uh, the mechanical and the BMS part of this because they're, they're intertwined. And oftentimes it seems like, like you said, in specifications, those, those two parties never communicate, they never meet and they, their needs and wants are, are together, really. And I think that's where a large downfall maybe in some, as an IT challenge for large-scale integrations is, is the network itself being just adequate for what is trying to be done or what is going to be done and the future of the system, the facility, anything that needs to get added and so on and so forth. Yeah, it needs to change from being a rarity to being the normal approach. Right. Because all building designs these days, uh, you know, with the exception of your small uh, strip mall retail places, all building designs are, you know, incorporating a lot more smart technology. And when it silos like that, it makes it very challenging, as Mark pointed out, to get those systems integrated properly to have the proper network infrastructure when 
those different groups that really should be intertwined within an A&E firm operate in their own little silos. Look, we're talking about network size and, you know, how many fibers, capacity, all that good stuff. How often in existing facilities do you find that, like, what they're, where they keep their network hardware probably oftentimes isn't even in a rack, isn't even in a, you know, climate controlled room, right? There's probably a lot of times where you find a lot of the network hardware kicking under a desk that somebody's feet are by, or even in a mechanical space where it's just hotter than all hell, there's boilers or equipment running. And that's, that's another important thing to note for these facilities is that stuff needs to be in its, in a proper location on that regard. Older facilities that you go into, you're absolutely correct. You know, sometimes uh, it's, you know, stuck in a closet next to the janitor closet or in an electrical closet with a bunch of uh, breakers and things like that. But I see more and more in designs these days that there's typically, you know, an IDF room uh, mm-hmm. on a floor. And then, you know, maybe there's a, a an MDF room somewhere mm-hmm. where that hardware is being put in a, you know, a space that has 24 seven uh, cooling capacity that's, you know, typically stacked throughout the building so that it's easy for that to connect up through the building. So from that perspective, I see that design coming a lot more frequently these days than years past. And those are ideal locations to include, you know, your BMS uh, network hardware, whether it's, you know, going into an existing rack or there's a separate rack for the BMS. Those are ideal locations, though oftentimes facilities people don't want them in there because they typically don't have access to those rooms. So it's a catch-22 situation, you know, ideal place for it, but IT uh, security typically keeps those spaces so tightly locked down that facilities operators don't have access to those spaces without, you know, having to get an IT person called in if it's off hours or something like that. So there's obviously great benefits, but there's also some drawbacks to that as well. And that's crazy to think about. I think, Rich, you hit the nail on the head that those those locations are locked down. Well, they're locked down because they need to be. And it, when we see situations where, as Clayton said, we see switches kicking around the floor underneath somebody's desk, those are, in and of themselves, are a security risk. Absolutely. So when you take that to the building owner or the, the individual responsible for physical and IT security and explain this needs to be changed, modified, put in a secure location where it can function reliable, re- reliably and is in an environment where it will be stable, that changes the conversation a little bit to, uh, as compared to, well, we need to keep the BMS running and make sure that the building is heated and cooled and ventilated. When you look at the enterprise risk, as you explained earlier, like Target, and that hardware is exposed, the building is exposed. So when you take that argument forward, it's usually a pretty short conversation and there's recognition that 
those devices need to be secured and put in a reliable location. I fight with people on that aspect pretty much continuously, Mark. I make the case for why servers and switches should be in those secure locations and facilities. People like, no, we don't, we don't want that in there because then we have to deal with IT. But they, <laughs> right. They should be dealing with IT though to make it operate absolutely kind of a seamless process. You, there, there should be no brick wall between BMS and IT because like in, in, mod, in today's modern facilities, it all ties together. I absolutely agree, Clayton, and it, it is absolutely the right way. I'll put another caveat out there, and this is more for the young people that might be listening to this podcast. Avail yourselves of the opportunity to understand, at least be conversant in IT terminology so that when the requirement comes for interaction with the IT folks, you have a working knowledge of networks of network security of network hardware so that you can be at least conversant obviously respecting the expertise of the it people but so you're not speaking two entirely different divergent languages because there is a, a large overlap nowadays between it and bms yeah i i see it more often than not i suppose it, you know even in my limited experience in the in the industry to that. And yeah, quite honestly, it was quite the learning curve for myself as well. Coming in, you know, as a mechanical engineering background, it, you know, okay, I understand, I understand BMS. I understand controls, how to operate in our handler, chiller sequences, all that good stuff. But now I got to understand all of this needs to be able to communicate on a network and how that network functions is critical. So now you, get, you do, you need to be able to say what, what single mode fiber, what's multi-mode fiber, switching aggregate switches there's there's a lot it's quite the learning curve to avail yourself of that information but once you do you know it's extremely beneficial to understand all that and to bring it all together it brings it in as a single system almost even as long as i have been in this business and and dealing with communications and networks uh, i'm always learning things you know, IT obviously stands for information technology. Building automation systems nowadays, I see them being referred to as OT or operational technology and the merging of information technology with operational technology. So there's a lot of terminology to stay on top of and it's evolving, you know, pretty much as quickly as all of the technology evolves. I see many, many, many individuals that have been in the controls business for a long time that have not kept pace with technology, emerging technology or even current technology. And it's, it's as Rich said, we're, we're both about the same age. If you're not learning every single day, then you're falling behind every single day. So it's imperative that you stay current and at least be conversational. Nobody says you have to be an expert but you definitely have to be conversational in IT to be able to communicate with them as far as requirements and be able to carry a compelling argument forward when IT needs to be brought in as a coordination or as a combined effort in portions of the BMS install. And I don't want to speculate, but it seems like IT people, personnel, 
they're very protective of their, as they should be of their network system, you know, and just being able to have that, that face-to-face conversation and show you have an understanding of what is going on. I think it helps sometimes either speed up what you're requesting or what you want, or just on a respect level. I don't know. It seems like there's so many more benefits too, just, just to be able to communicate to the, if you want to call it the other side to really make things happen. Well, I would not necessarily call them the other side, but uh, the other half. Yeah. The other half. Right. And from a security aspect, you know, some of the evolving technologies that make it easier to, you know, marry IT with OT, you know, various different companies are uh, developing security hardware that basically sits on the network and does nothing other than monitor the validity of the devices on the network, basically watch for malicious activity, both in software applications and hardware applications, that should make it much uh, more palatable for the IT people to feel comfortable combining the building automation or OT uh, with their typical IT network. You talked about that, Rich. Clayton and I were on a project and there was a, there was a fairly significant communications issue on the BMS VLAN that was cross-connected at a couple of different locations to different enterprise networks to give multiple network residents access to the system. So in an effort to assist the BMS contractor, we basically put a network sniffer on the network and ran down, said, well, we have obviously some conflicts here. Here's where they are. And the BMS contractor took that forward to IT. IT said, where'd you get this information? And we almost got thrown off the site. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yep. <laughs> Remember that Clayton? It was, yeah, a, yep, it was, a, we had we're to not pleased, but you found the, help find the problem. I mean, you kind of helped find the problem, <clears throat> but they were totally unhappy that some outsiders, they, they looked at it as a hack and it wasn't really a hack. We were only looking for what was causing the communications issues. A little too dangerous with our IT knowledge there. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. But <laughs> EMS knuckleheads yeah, do you guys aren't supposed to know about this. <laughs> How'd you get into here? How'd you know how to use Wireshark or right? What, is that Any what of that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I think we're at a good point in the, the episode to kind of wrap up our discussion. Well, I think we, st- one of the things we need to wrap up or one of the key to it success with large scale integration, yes. the key difference in fails and failures and successes. So, and this is a commonality, I think that I always put forth in all of the podcasts, it all starts with the foundation. So it's planning is one of the big keys and early planning, integrating IT as a partner is essential to successes. Couldn't say that more strongly, Mark. Yeah. And I think that's the big takeaway of this episode is BMS in itself is very important, but it needs to be married with IT to kind of allow for and help with these large scale integration projects. That's where it all comes together. 
is over the IT network. So with that being said, Mark and Rich, I think you guys are absolutely correct. And thank you very much for your time and adding to the episode. And guys, stay tuned. Our next episode, we will be discussing proper PID control loops. So I know we're bouncing around a little bit, but all still related to BMS. The next session for everyone listening. Okay, so today we were at a very, very macro level, obviously the highest level you can go to. Next episode, we'll go to the very granular level, which is the performance of the actual control functions. Both are absolutely essential. And I think both are probably equally overlooked. And the, the proper PID control loop and control loop tuning, it's fun. It doesn't need to be intimidating. So uh, I'm looking forward to the next podcast myself. Yeah, I agree completely. PID control loops or PI control loops, depending on the system, they really, they're interesting. They're fun. Once you get it right, it's, it's awesome. It's very impressive what they can do once they're tuned correctly. So there's a little sneak peek on our next episode. So stay tuned and have a great day, guys.